Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. This week, we are going to look at one of the most contentious topics in all of crypto. How do you effectively govern an open source, decentralized network to achieve a common objective? One of the key promises of blockchain technology and the decentralized applications built on top of it is the removal of centralized parties controlling and making decisions that benefit them as opposed to all agents in the system. But of course, that's easier said than done. So we are honored today to have Mr. Richard Murhead, founding partner at Fabric Ventures, with us today. Uh, Fabric Ventures is one of the most prominent VCs investing actively in Web3 companies. Some of their portfolio companies include the Ocean Protocol, uh, 0x, Filecoin, and, and Polkadot. And from the Amun team, we are joined by Yotam and Lanre. And by me, my name is Hansen. I'll be your host today. So today, we have our researcher Lanre introducing the topic. Lanre, why don't you kick off the session? Cool. Thank you, Hansen, for that. So as we all know, I'll be talking about open source governance. And I think before we get into the weeds of how open source governance works, especially in the context of crypto, I think it's good just to start off with a bit of a background and a brief definition of what both the phrases open source and governance mean. So open source software is software whose source code is made available with a license which provides rights to examine, modify, and redistribute said software without restriction based on the user's identity or purpose. And by governance, I mean a model which describes the roles of various participants within a network or, or project and the roles that they can take on and the processes for deciding the decision-making process within the network, uh, within the project. So open source software has you know, a history spanning back at least formally to the 1970s and Bitcoin and other crypto assets are very much predicated on open software development. But one interesting thing, especially in the context of designing crypto asset networks is there are a variety of ways when that an open source software crypto project can be governed. And these various governance models have drastic outcomes on the success of a given protocol or not. So for example, uh, in open source software, traditionally, you can have models which range from benevolent dictator models, such as which was used by Python and Python's creator, to more meritocratic models where no single entity controls governance within the network. Uh, and especially in traditional uh, free open source software projects, it's often the case that something like Ubuntu or Apache will have very discrete and formalized governance procedures. But crypto as a network hasn't gotten to the stage where open source governance uh, can be argued to be held to the same standard as some of its predecessors. So I think that kind of more or less summarizes some of the key definitions. Throughout this talk, we'll be focusing mostly on governance within crypto. But I think this is a perfect time to bring in Richard, since I know that you've been in the software industry for 20, 30 years and have a lot of experience working with open source software. So in your words, could you help explain why governance, especially in crypto, is so important? 
Yeah. So um, I think st- uh, stepping back, um, the the question of governance, I mean, gets to the very heart of um, the, the hardest thing in software development, which is not just understanding um, uh, what code to, to commit, to accept into a chain, but actually perhaps even more importantly than that, um, both what set of requirements to try to address in the first place and indeed, um, you know, who is it um, that uh, is going to be uh, allowed to build the solution to that particular set of requirements? All of those those factors can be extremely uh, influential on the progress of a project um, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, how, how quickly something's delivered, but also how well it's delivered. And indeed, uh, when you have lots of contending requirements for a project, you know, which requirements were um, uh, get delivered against. And that, of course, can make some customers happy and some not, and it can make some contributors happy and some some not. So it's it gets to the heart of what, um, even in one what one might like to think is a straightforward situation in a centrally governed uh, commercial organization is a horrendously um, contentious and complicated uh, set of uh, trade-offs. And actually, I would argue, probably is the number one arbiter of success or failure in any given um, startup. Um, And then if you think about mapping that to an environment where you want to be able to embrace the benefits of open source. That is, you need you know multiple participants. Uh, we'll come to the fact that, of course, that it may actually be a very small team of people who are actually you know the predominant driving force for, behind the code base, or um, and that you know multiple people setting their eyes on the on, on the code and being able to uh, deal with different subsets of this, so you can get a very large, uh, should we say. Uh, set of adaptations or integrations with the kind of the out, the the rest of the kind of uh, code universe. Um, when when you want to achieve that, uh, and therefore uh, and you therefore embrace open source, you know, i.e., a project that is not just beholden to one commercial entity, the governance issues become uh, even more highly exacerbated. So that's, I mean, that that's. Uh, Kind of drawing upon, should we say, my specific experience of the, the product management dilemma over the last few decades. I think at a, at a very high level, that kind of very much summarizes why governance is important. But I think, especially more focused in just in crypto, uh, I think a lot of these issues, you know, perhaps are exemplified, especially given based on a conception of you know something like Bitcoin or Ethereum as a public good, and questions as to whether. Oh, so we're not talking necessarily about a corporation or a project which is owned by a couple of people, but rather we're talking about some kind of service or good and service, which in theory is beholden to the entire world or, you know, whoever wishes to be involved in the project, at which point governance, you know, becomes even even more important in the same way that governance over the climate or the water, or water supply is, you know, uh, an essential problem that one has to deal with. Uh, I, th- I think the same argument can be made for crypto. And, and, it's, and it's kind of the reason why, especially in, the, in 2017, and since some of these on-chain governance projects have launched, governance has tended to be one of the most talked about topics within crypto. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree. And I mean, it, maybe to just give it sort of my context, um, in the first company I built in the mid-90s, we used... 
And, it, and it's interesting to reflect at that point in time, even using open source, you know, within commercial software was viewed as, you know, reasonably outlandish. Um, and this was way, be, you know, b before, um, you know, just like uh, Microsoft had stopped calling uh, open source a, a virus, I think is what Steve Barmer called it. And, um, and but at that time, you know, it was also the time of MySQL and and, and Linux, obviously, which is extremely pivotal in, in, in the first build out of the, of, should we say, Web One. Um, you, you know, the people would accept maybe that that service providers would use free software, and that there was a team that was kind of may or may not have been well compensated for developing that software. Um, but gradually, you know, folks tried to build the service and support model for uh, providing uh, the commercialization of their work. And obviously, examples include MySQL, my uh, partner at OpenOcean, um, uh, Monty Vidanius had actually built. But then, you know, if we look forward, MySQL sold in 2008 for a billion dollars, and then just now Red Hat obviously sold to IBM. Um, but there's a pretty strong argument that the the potential for success with that kind of business model is pretty limited, and there'll probably never be a another uh, Red Hat again. And as has been sort of documented in some of the way that we've described the, the kind of evolution of the open source world, um, uh, we transitioned into a time when all of these open source uh, projects uh, were co-opted um, by large organizations. And uh, we like to say that, you know, today's tech titans, and or many of them at least in some senses, managed to uh, build their market capitalization on the, on the back of software that they didn't really own or you know, certainly could have initiate, but have now sponsored. And then in many cases, our own personal data. And, um, and, and they do that because obviously they need to have a reasonably tight control of what's going on in the project because their business relies upon it. But I think picking up on your point, once you move from it just being open source software, you know, source code that can be um, inspected and it has the benefits of the collaborative development and the open inspection from a security perspective, amongst other things, it, from that to a world where it's actually open source execution of the code and the, and the networks are running live um, and that the it is the community, not just of developers or participants in that network that also give it, give it value. You're absolutely right. I think that that takes the question of governance up, you know, maybe not just a notch or two, but up maybe, you know, it's just to the to the square of, of what it, where it was before um, because of the network of effects involved. I want to touch on that. So you guys, I mean, we started the session off with understanding why the governance is so important. And that's, I understand that. I find it operatively very difficult though, right? Imagine you have a network, an open network, just like we just said, Bitcoin, Ethereum, where you have anonymous participants. Maybe many of the participants in the network have different agendas. The miners want something else than, than developers on there maybe. So far, I mean, what's, what is one of the you know, better ways that, that you can govern a system where you don't know who's in there, where you do have people who have uh, opposing or just at least not the same uh, objectives? Who wants to go first? We'll see if we can make that decision collaboratively on the podcast. <laughs> no, there was a loaded question. I, I do admit that. And I mean, maybe I can continue a little bit more to make the question a bit more specific. So let's talk, let's go back to what Lan just addressed, which is on-chain governance, right? Versus off-chain governance. Um, in on-chain governance, the, the main benefit is, and I, I assume for this purposes uh, that, It is a token holder voting mechanism. 
that um, at least it's transparent. It's 100% transparent. We know from which address what vote was made. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there's other mechanisms out there, especially in the open source before crypto, um, which might suit better than just on-chain governance. Yeah, I mean, I think decisions can be highly complex. I mean, that's the first point to make. And um, if you're going to have on-chain governance, you have to obviously work out what the voting mechanism is going to be. And is it going to be, uh, you know, uh, anonymous or not? And is it going to be, you know, one token, one vote? Or, or is there a threshold? Or however you might want to do it. And, and then even then, like, um, there are many uh, different ways uh, that you might um, tot up the votes when they come in. Um, you know, is there a, an overall threshold um, that it has to pass for for a certain decision? You know, classically in the Articles of Association, you have a majority at fifty percent or a supermajority at seventy five percent for certain um, elements of the Articles of Association of a company to change. So, but you know, you need to know about all of that and consider it in the context of the different decisions you're going to make. You know, in advance. Um, it's quite hard to deal with uh, unexpected uh, circumstances. Uh, and, you know, we're breaking new ground in terms of the questions that need to be um, uh, addressed. Um, and it can be quite hard even, you know, when you have done that to ensure that you've, you know, get the participation that you want. And I, the, the numbers are not kind of on the t tip of my tongue, but I'm pretty certain that there was, um, if you analyze the decision about the, the fork of the, the DAO back in 2016, one of the remarkable things was um, people might have had strong opinions, but I think a lot of people who could have voted didn't vote. Um, so that's, you know, may also makes it more uh, complex. So anything on chain as kind of programmatic and, and ostensibly predictable and transparent as it might seem to be, it, it's quite hard to uh, plan for. Um, I think there's another thing to bear in mind, which is that in the very earliest days of project development, and I think we may have seen this out and sort of, you know, borne out in the way in which, uh, say, Ethereum is still uh, developing, is that you... Um, you know, you may want to aspire to a kind of fully decentralized governance system over time, and that might be the right way in the sort of maturity of the network to attract people to stay with that project over a considerable period of time. And, and maybe we can get to the topic of how do you reward people to be continuing to do the maintenance work on the network, you know, at that point. But, you know, you may need to make decisions quicker than that. Uh, um, and not get stuck in kind of loops of decision making earlier. And a benevolent dictator model could, in fact, be exactly the right approach to take. Yeah, just one funny, funny anecdote. I'm one of those people you are talking about, Richard. I invested in the DAO very early, and my money was gone like everyone else's who was affected. And I didn't bother voting uh, exactly for the reasons that you said. It went over my head. I, I didn't know exactly what I was voting on. Um, I didn't have all the information available that I needed or more precisely, I didn't take the time, you know, to to look at this, even though my own money is affected. So when you're like in something where you are not directly affected, even monetarily wise, um, it's even more likely that you're not going to vote, right? That's why we see such low participation rates um, for DAOs, for example. Exactly, and now look, and um, it's taken us now 15 minutes and 26 seconds to get to this point, but uh, I'm 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 going to mention Brexit, um, but. As an example, an example of, of governance, well, just to say that if you think about the, one of the complexities there is, I'm not going to say that people um, didn't understand what they were voting on when they did or didn't vote in the first place. 
um, but you get strange dynamics, which is that perhaps someone votes and then, you know, that half resolves the issue. And then afterwards, there's a people reflect on that vote and say that, you know, people didn't know what they were voting on. Now they actually have an emotional reaction to being told they didn't know what they were doing, um, which wouldn't necessarily um, improve the quality of the voting going forward. So, you know, having something programmatic um, uh, or, or definitive or deterministic in the way in which your voting mechanism operates and then relying on people who are, who are voting, at the end of the day, they're people who are both fallible and human and emotional and human, you know, it can have unexpected results. It doesn't, you know, even, even when you get people paying attention, they may just dig in their heels with a particular decision. Again, I'm trying to be neutral, whether that decision is, in this instance, leave or remain. It's not like they dig in, you know, that they, they dig into the analysis and may come to a better decision. They just dig in their heels. And just to interject there, I, I think especially the analogy of Brexit when talking about maybe some of the potential issues with programmatic or on-chain governance is, you know, quite interesting. Because so one criticism of, of, of these kind of votes of referenda, yes or no votes, is that it, it maybe it's often much more difficult to include checks and balances to, you know, avoid some of the problems we've seen. And I guess Vitalik had a pretty good way of, you know, disambiguating this kind of concept and the concept within the realms of blockchain governance by using the phrase, you know, tightly coupled versus loosely coupled governance. So a tightly coupled governance model would be something like Tezos, where token holders vote on, on a procedure, and after three months, that procedure or the outcome of the vote is updated automatically on any of the node create on any of the validators within the Tezos network. And a more loosely coupled model would be one where uh, any kind of vote which occurs, so such as the the token holder vote that occurred following the DAO hack doesn't necessarily lead to protocol level changes automatically, but rather is just one signal of many, which influences decisions that occur on the protocol level. Uh, and personally, I've always been a bigger fan of, I've always been a bigger fan of the latter of like a more loosely coupled model for on-chain governance or governance in general, since I guess by definition, most off-chain blockchain governance systems will also be loosely coupled. Since one could view that kind of model as allowing for a much greater amount of checks and balances than a simple coin holder vote, which we've seen in, in kind of EOS or block one. So yeah, I think that's an interesting point to bring up as well. And I think exactly the, I think it's well, well said in in the, in the context of you know um, the way that Vitalik has cast it, and and what it reminds me of is, um, um, and I and I was I, I still haven't unearthed whether or not we we really have an institution that is a parallel to the internet internet engineering task force as it was. Uh, and, and still is, but as it was back in the kind of nineties and, and look, you know, I have to put my hand up. I mean, I, I wasn't cutting code, but I was attending uh, those, uh, those events back in the, the mid nineties. And, but there, there are some interesting things to learn from the approach that they took. You could say it was, you know, definitively a kind of loosely coupled approach. Um, people gathered uh, in the task force meetings and then you'd have, um, you know, birds of a feather kind of like meetings around particular papers were, that were being collaboratively written, white papers around different, you know, protocols effectively, uh, well, not effectively, protocols um, uh, or update grades to protocols. And 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 they were from different organizations. And But the key thing it allowed for was people would develop the papers and then were, the whole point was to, uh, to, to 
to deliver working code. So like you'd write papers and you deliver working code and you'd get things up and running and interoperating. And the kind of, it was that kind of like, you know, you know, getting to a rough working consensus of what to do and getting to a rough working con, you know set of code is was the kind of the, the the mode of operation which kind of uh is good in the sense is kind of quite pragmatic and it allows time for sort of checks and balances to kick in and, to, and for, for you know a, a working architecture to, to settle and people to actually see how it works i guess you could say the downside of it is that um uh, as indeed turn out to be the, the case is that, you know, the only people who can afford some of some academia, but the only people who afford could spend that kind of time in developing the software um, were commercial entities. So a lot of the ones that we were collaborating with were particularly like Intel and Cisco and Nortel or you know, Bay Networks or whatever. Um, and they would spend the time doing the work in between and then attending these events and, and getting everything working. And it was, I, I must say it was, a, it was, um, uh, it was different. So the the new um, feel of say uh, DevCon five in uh, I was over there in Osaka is, is very. What is the feel? It's kind of very much the kind of you know new sort of um, developer road warrior or, or or even kind of like postmodern um, you know traveling worker or whatever you know model of things. But the the feel in, in the nineties just for what it's worth is was extremely. Um, sort of bearded and Birkenstock wearing still at that at that point point in time, but um, but I think then the the other th- difference that they had then was that they would develop a certain you know piece of code, say for example a way of reserving bandwidth in the in the in the IP best efforts network, and then you know different companies could have their implementations of that working code and implemented in their products one of the differences i guess going back to your point lanre is that you, here although you might end up with a fork of networks one of the big values is that there's a, a network that goes live and works and attracts interest and users and maybe liquidity or whatever it is, it becomes the winner in a, in a kind of winner takes all situation for that particular use and and so that I think changed the the again the dynamic of what is the appropriate way of governing the decisions about uh, what to do, and then ultimately I guess you know you know who's you know which network wins and whose code to implement. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that's an interesting point. I, I think especially touching on the whole point. Like, so I guess this is vaguely related to the whole concept of forking, since often the often in the context of Bitcoin. People have argued that Bitcoin's primary governance mode is governance by fork, wherein anyone that wishes that disagrees with a governance decision on Bitcoin can simply fork Bitcoin and then create their own crypto asset. Uh, and I, I guess one difference between open source software in the 1990s and now, and, and, and crypto software now, is that back then the the process of when uh, Michael uh, forked MySQL into MariaDB wasn't necessarily value reductive for MySQL, but it could be argued that if one were to fork Ethereum today and really have a really competitive product, very quickly, Ethereum's value would go down as a result of that, which adds an interesting element to like this whole governance by fork paradigm. You know, even said that, even saying that, this isn't something we've really seen to this day because so one could argue that most other crypto assets are in some way a kind of fork of Bitcoin. For example, Vitalik started Ethereum initially as a side chain on Bitcoin, but because of 
some technical limitations, he decided to make his own Ethereum, make his own blockchain. And that fact in itself didn't necessarily have any negative effects on Bitcoin. Uh, and we've seen the same case with Litecoin and Zcash, for example. But it isn't necessarily to say this will always be the case going forward. Uh, yeah, so, so, so I think that's another point I want to bring up related to that. I look, I mean, that's well said. And I think, I mean, it, what immediately springs to into my mind's eye is, is you know, and you mentioned the kind of this this Cambrian explosion, and and um, it, it's a very organic process. And I think whilst there will be many, you know, efforts that fail in the very earlier stages, and even ones that go some some distance before not working out, I think the overall universe of possible areas of value that can be delivered is 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 so great um, that you know you will have that survival of the fittest or kind of evolutionary process that you know takes place um and um you know it's not a zero-sum game or rather the universe is very big for value to be generated and on top of that it's not necessarily a zero-sum game you know you know you could argue that to take your example you could argue that bitcoin's value proposition uh, adapted and evolved in reaction to the fact that ethereum was successful now and now if we have some of the proverbial eks or ethereum killers who crop up um, I, I would I would suggest that you know there is a there's a natural dynamic in terms of the cost of forking and the challenge of doing that right and attracting community that 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 sets a bar, and then people who try and you know surpass that bar and deliver something will probably seek to to you know do something better than Ethereum and and or you know address an adjacent sort of set of application requirements for example or, or build a slightly different community or in a different geography or some other set of constraints and it won't be just that they do that but the success of a an Ethereum you know killer leapfrog or flank or whatever you want to call it um, will also have a dynamic effect on Ethereum itself which will then make choices about where to focus. And, you know, again, it's kind of abstract sort of component, but I, you know, in, I mentioned product management at the front and these kind of hard decisions about where to focus. The kind of one of the other things I always found through product management that it just turned out to be a truism is that you, you always tend to be cautious about making decisions and focusing in a given area and those are difficult choices. But then when you do, you discover there's so much more for you to do in that area that you hadn't quite realized until you really dug into it. And that, that, that actually provides the strength and differentiation of what you build. And actually, you know, you, you dig, you dig deeper and you find get more value. In my mind's eye, it was always kind of like almost this sort of fractal concept that the more you expanded out, it, you know, the, the, the coastline or the, the pattern uh, kind of, it was recursive and the deeper you go, there's more, um, the more you pan out. So um, when you dig into these different requirements and the possible solutions. So, so I think that's an interesting di- dynamic, or, organic um, dynamic to uh, the, the way that these different projects will uh, evolve. I have a, I have a general question to, to that, to what you just said, Richard, or I mean, to everyone actually here, do you guys also feel like that the topic of governance, people are trying to reinvent it as a result of, you know, the emergence of blockchain companies? I think that's right. No, I mean, I think, so I think there's a super interesting, you know, we're, we're moving. I mean, you could argue basically that the whole of economics has suddenly in the last 10 years turned out to be finally debunked, maybe. <laughs> Certainly um, nobody predicted that you would be able to uh, 
uh, print money and uh, encourage growth um, and then not have any inflation for considerably, you know, long periods of time in multiple economies. And, you know, as we, it's well documented, the kind of fiscal monetary levers of um, uh, kind of, uh, We've run out of them in, in, in you know, large swathes of the of, of the world, um, and people are not quite sure what's going to happen next. So that's one point. And then the second point is that it, I think you know, and I'm not an economist, but you know, what I've, I've noted is that um, people have understood that um, that behavior and and understanding behavioral psychology with respect to uh, econ- uh, economics and indeed um, leaning more on um, uh, experiments and actual, you know, data uh, is is becoming um, kind of mainstream, and I think um, we can see that in the way in which new crypto protein networks are taking hold. Um, uh, we can see, I believe, that, for example, like you can see that it is not a set of rational behaviors that will incentivize a um, a developer or a set of users to be involved in a project in the in at the start of a project. It's an irrational calculation of the the pride they might have of being involved in a project that becomes super super successful. By the way, I don't mean that's wrong. I mean I just mean it's the way it works. And then the interesting thing is that because of the lower costs of creating these different effectively economic you know experiments, uh, we're going to get uh, and we are getting a whole bunch more data to kind of drive this. Uh, uh, experimental economic sort of discipline, um, and 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 give it you know, develop, I guess, probably whole new theories on how monetary and fiscal policy in those sort of digital economies with mix of sort of uh, external and native, um, you know, digital money, um, and and see how that all plays out. So I think it's, um, and I think that relates then directly to you know to 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 governance, not and governance of the economy there, but governance of the decision-making on the code and governance um, writ large. I think people are, um, uh, you know, I think we could always use use better governance. We've seen that in different instances. Um, we can see it's not easy from our current experiences, but I think this whole whole wave of software eating governance, if you will, um, um, could be pretty exciting um, in general. Yeah, for sure. But that, I mean, what I'm thinking about, what I'm wondering about right now is, you know, people have been trying to solve this governance problem for for for, cent- for millennia, actually, right? And now suddenly that crypto has been there for 10 years, I feel like people are trying to find a solution within a, you know, less than a decade to a, se- a millennia-old problem. Um, that's going to be... Well, I, think, I think you're right. It's like, it's pretty radically optimistic that one can do that. But having said that, um, I think it's interesting that you can not solve something for a long time, but then with the right set of circumstances and input and incentives, suddenly people can solve extraordinary problems. I mean, I don't know when you liken it to, to a moonshot or whatever. I think it's, it's, it, it can work like that. I guess that's the optimist in me that maybe we'll just take some leaps and bounds. And we can only wait and see. Um, but I'm also optimistic like you. Um, awesome. I think uh, we are slowly running out of time now. Um, thank you, everyone, for participating, uh, especially you, Richard. Thank you for taking the time to joining us here at Amun. Um, all right. So this concludes today's episode, and we look forward to seeing you next week. This was it from the Amun team. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week. Bye.